Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. I was really excited. I got an email whose subject line was that I'd been accidentally underpaid due to a payroll error. It turned out I got an extra 61 cents coming my way (laughs) (laughs) in total (laughs) across three papers. (laughs) And go buy some gum. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Dara Lind and Ezra Klein. We're going to talk today about co-determination, about capitalism. It's exciting. About the varieties of capitalism. I'm pumped. And our inspiration is uh, Elizabeth Warren uh, last week did a, a, a new bill that she introduced. She calls it the Accountable Capitalism Act. This has a few different kind of moving points to it. uh, But the main idea is she wants to say companies that have over a billion dollars in revenue, she wants to say that they should get a special federal charter of incorporation and that this charter should do a few things. One is that it should specifically instruct directors that they should consider all stakeholders in a business enterprise, uh, customers, employees, communities in which they operate, and not just the shareholders. And then this is going to be made real by the fact that workers at the company will be able to elect 40% of the members of the board. Then she has some other provisions uh, related to stock buybacks um, that I think are a little less interesting uh, for our purposes, but also that she wants to say that the federal government can apply a kind of like um, corporate death sentence and and like yank the charter of a company that breaks the rules in sort of egregious ways. So this and there's this corporate political activity provision where seventy five percent of the shareholders and and board members would have to authorize corporations spending a bunch of money on politics. Right. You know, in that case, because forty percent of the board members would be elected by workers, right. you would need a kind of consensus inside the firm. And, and this is actually the area where I think you can draw like the sharpest conclusion as to what the result of this would be. Mm. And it's that for, I think businesses could still engage in fairly extensive political activity under that rule, but it would have to be pretty narrowly related to 
the industry that they are operating in, right? So like at a coal company, probably both the owners of the coal company and the people who work at the coal company want regulations that allow power plants to consume a lot of coal. But a lot of the things that businesses do in the political world, at least they strike me as kind of like generic, like what do rich business executives like you know, sort of as a class, um, lobbying for corporate tax cuts, things like that, which would be harder to do here. So I think that that is probably true, but I think the reason that it's true isn't quite what you're saying. I mean, we have seen cases in the past of, you know, illegal or borderline legal coercion as we approach election days from like franchise owners of like fast food restaurants telling their workers, the Republican is going to be better for you essentially with the argument that because the under a Republican, the owner of the business will like not sure. have to forfeit as much in taxes that like that will, you know, essentially trickle down to the workers or that will result in more business investment. What that is to say is that business owners are telling their workers the same story about why the current system exists that a lot of economists tell, which is that it's important to have firm autonomy because that results in more business investment and more innovation. And one of the interesting things I've seen about the debate around Warren's proposal is that we've kind of seen some holes in that narrative, right? The idea it appears to be a nice story that doesn't actually result in the kind of rising tide lifting all boats that the supporters of unfettered capitalism would lead you to believe. So, so I'd like to zoom out here. Right. Because if you read the commentary on this, Matt, you had a great piece. Uh, I believe it was titled Elizabeth Warren's Plan to Save American Capitalism. Yeah. Then there are a bunch of pieces at the National Review and at Reason and, and, and at right-wing publications that tended to be titled something along the lines of, Elizabeth Warren's plan to destroy American capitalism, Elizabeth Warren's corporate catastrophe plan. All of them seem to be revolving first and foremost around two questions. One is, is there a problem in American capitalism to begin with? Right. And the second is, if there is, then this charter, what does this charter actually do? Like, how would it change the way corporations are governed? But Matt, I know that you've done a lot of work on this. How would you describe Warren's theory of what the problem in capitalism is right now? What is she trying to fix? I would say her critique, which I think has been gathering steam over a number of years now, is that sort of shareholder-driven capitalism was to an extent brought to us in the late 1970s and, and early 1980s and in the time of, of stagflation. And the promise of this revolution was – you might think, right, you know, naive podcast listener, that empowering shareholders over other stakeholders is going to lead to just an explosion of inequality where the rich get richer and everybody else suffers. But that's wrong, right? That by incentivizing shareholders to make as much money as possible, you are going to see a surge in investment, a surge in productivity, and the rising tide is going to lift all boats, right? And it's now clear 40 years later, that that promise of the Reagan revolution did not come true, right? Now, I mean, people still can and do argue that it's better than the alternative, but the overall rate of economic growth went down, not up, after that period of time. Inequality went up, but the rising tide did not sort of come to pass, right? And so Warren's view of which this proposal is just like, one theory of how you get there, but is that we need to go back to the sort of 
mid-century American social model in which shareholders were understood to be like one of several stakeholders and corporate executives were supposed to be um, – I don't know what, these slightly cuddlier figures who did things for the benefit of, of a broad range of people who were involved. I, I mean, I remember um, President Obama, when you were interviewing him in the White House, he went off musing on, on a tangent like this where he was saying that, you know, back in the day it used to be you were the CEO of a company. Your company might be in Toledo. Uh, you, of course, wanted to make money. You wanted your company to do well. But you saw yourself as rooted in that community and that having the community you were located in do well was a priority of yours, whereas in the modern day, as Obama said it, you know, under the pressures of globalization, whatever, if like the cheapest place to make your windows is someplace in China, then it's like you don't care about Toledo. You're you're completely uprooted. So, you know, the Warren view is that a more rooted, more sort of ethics-driven business environment would be desirable and that this is a way to create that or even maybe just a way to create an excuse to talk about it, which I I sometimes don't know exactly what politicians are, are up to when they introduce bills. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's I a, mean— That's a whole other episode right. of the weeds. But if the latter, then at least we are talking about it. And I think mm-hmm. you're, you're correct that this is now a way to kind of focus this narrative that's been gathering steam about what's wrong. But I think it's worth underlining that the shareholder theory of capitalism isn't a moral theory, right? Like it's not a social Darwinist, like whatever the distribution of income is when shareholders are calling all the shots, that is good. That is the way it should be. I think that that's often the way people kind of talk about it in folk contexts. And I think that a lot of Republican office holders kind of default to this view, the kind of makers and takers idea. But that's not what the actual theory in question is. It's not necessarily an empirical argument, but it's an argument about here is what is going to lead to the best outcome for everybody. So that's what makes it subject to like, well, if we see that that is not true, that should lead us to reject this theory. It kind of prevents the shift to, well, It doesn't really matter what the empirical outcomes of it are because shareholders ought to be the people calling the shots. But I think that the kind of Warren argument of, you know, we need to have these rooted communities pops up in a lot of other things that we don't think of as like shareholder theory of capitalism things. If you hear critiques about companies don't train their workers anymore, if you hear critiques about, you know, even the kind of right-wing populist critiques of companies are more interested in hiring foreign workers because they can get lower wages, arguments about uh, parental leave, for example, really all of these end up coming back to a theory of if you have companies that are invested in their workers over the course of their careers, you are going to have companies that are going to be developing human capital rather than just skimming it off the top. So there are a couple things that are coming out here that I, w- I want to pull out a little bit. One, just to say this very clearly, this is a bill meant to change corporate cultures. It is a bill that is trying to come up with a way to change the culture of how capitalism works more than it includes within it very specific mechanisms that mechanically change how how capitalism works or how corporations work. I mean this idea that uh, a board of directors would have more representation from workers and would have instructions to consider a broader range of stakeholders, everything can turn out exactly the same as it does now. Now, maybe it wouldn't. Probably it even wouldn't. But but it's just worth noting that that this is an effort to change who is in the room and and in doing so to, to change culture. I want to use this as an opportunity to talk about Warren a little bit because I think we're getting a lot of insight here into her coming presidential campaign, but also into her. 
I have covered Elizabeth Warren for a long time. Matt, I, I think you have as well, since way before she was in government. And I think that's something people don't really understand about her. There is a tendency to flatten like the ideological dimensions in politics uh, quite a bit. So there's a view that, you know, Warren and Bernie Sanders come from the same wing of the party. And in a way they do. But one thing that is different about Warren from a lot of people who she gets grouped in with politically, and I'll, I'll use Sanders here as a foil, but but many others are, are like this, is that I would say if you look at Bernie Sanders's career or, or Jeff Merkley or, or a lot of people like this, you see people with a lot of views on government. Bernie Sanders has a lot of views about how government should work. Uh, he thinks we should have Medicare for all, and he thinks that taxes should work in a very different way than they currently do and that we should have a carbon tax. He's got a lot of views on, on the safety net uh, and on how the state should be constructed. Warren, before she was in government, was a theorist and a critic of capitalism itself. If you go back in her work, what you see, she, she was a law professor at Harvard. She did a huge amount of work on corporate culture and, and, and accountability. She was on her first role in government, to my knowledge, was on the TARP Oversight Board. But around that time and before that time, she was proposing things like the Consumer Protection Agency, but also coming up with a lot of ideas about how to fight what she saw as complexity in capitalism that was being used to rig markets and, and to screw over people. So she had a lot of ideas about plain vanilla products and trying to make things that people could understand well enough that they could then operate and exercise market power. And so just something I think is interesting about Warren is it compared to a lot of other people we think of as liberals from relatively the same wing of the party, Warren has, I think, actually more and more interesting ideas about how to reform capitalism and how corporations operate and work than she does about how to reform the state and kind of big social safety net programs. And, and here I think you're seeing a way in which her political campaign is going to be interesting and, and somewhat different, her presidential campaign, I'm sorry, which is that I think it's going to be based on a view that capitalism needs to be saved at this moment from the capitalists. And what we need are ideas and laws and approaches, but also um, politicians, in her case probably, uh, the, the rationale will be a president, who are creating a rhetorical culture, who are creating a, a political culture, who are creating a sense that things are supposed to work differently, that what will be viewed favorably, what will be viewed ethically, what will be looked upon as, as plausible and, and positive by regulators is just going to be different. And that's actually quite a different way of thinking about what the paths are forward. If what we're talking about to, to deal with this period in, in American capitalism is straight redistribution, which is a theory, that's one thing. If what we're talking about is reforming how corporations and other stakeholders within the system work, you know, how big corporations can get, right? Warren is a big fan of breaking up banks, a big critic of monopolies. That's quite different and, and speaks to a much more hands-on approach from uh, an elected official in getting into the guts of the market itself and trying to reconstruct the rules of the game so that it ends up producing different outcomes. I think that that's true, but I think that understanding that nuance requires understanding that there isn't a thing called capitalism that exists separate from any rules Absolutely. or regulations. Yes. And, and I think this is kind of the really interesting question about how this debate continues to develop. Because if we continue to have a Republican Party that treats any government rules about how the economy works as identical, it's going to be much harder to have a good conversation about 
is it more important to use government as a counterbalance or to use government to shape the rules by which corporations operate? So, you know, you're describing what could be a very interesting debate within the Democratic Party or could be a very interesting debate within the American public, depending largely on what Republican politicians do. But this is where I think Donald Trump's role is interesting. Yes. Because, you know, we don't talk about Overton window shifting and, and various things, but it's actually Trump who has kicked out at least like two of the three legs of the the conceptual stool of like arm's length Anglo-American capitalism. Like one way in which Republicans and Democrats are different is like if Elizabeth Warren wants to talk about big ideas, she feels compelled to like release this bill text, whereas Donald Trump will just say things. But like he on the campaign trail, he was just saying that he did not think companies should be allowed to shut down American factories and then replace them with foreign imports. He never produced a plan to stop that from happening. Uh, As president, the trade policy he's implementing is kind of different from what he said. The modalities are different. He obviously uh, was not restrained in his rhetoric by like the four letters of what what the law said. But also in office, he has used the president's trade policy authority in very aggressive ways that sort of align with the vision that he outlined there. But either way, he is like clearly not saying that the optimal society is one in which the investor class allocates capital for its own profit-seeking resources, and then that leads to a socially optimal distribution of things. He really put on the table, and I think it has not come off the table since it, it matters a lot what Republicans say about these things. He's put on the table the idea that corporate executives should be subjected to moral criticism by leading figures in civil society. And that's actually an incredibly radical kind of idea, right? And if the right pole of the political discourse is going to go there, right? That there should be moral criticism of business leaders' decisions for its impact on workers and middle-class living standards. That really opens up the playing field for some much harder hammering, right, into the legal system, into the regulatory system. Of course, Trump when he's appointed judges, when he's appointed regulators, has not necessarily filled those jobs with people who agree with him about this, uh, which makes it relatively weak in practice. But even if you like, you didn't pass this law, right? But for Elizabeth Warren, as a more disciplined person who has a stronger Rolodex of policymakers, simply filled all of the economic policy and legal jobs with people who agree with her about this subject and then continued to speak vocally on it while even Republicans have abandoned the sort of rhetoric of, of I don't know, neoliberalism. Uh, like that itself is a potentially large change in these things because I do think it it matters, right? Like there's, there's this fascinating sort of dialogue happening inside Google right now where the company wants to make a censored search engine to get in on the China market. The reason they want to do that is is obvious, right? Like there's a lot of people live in China. You can make money there. A lot of people who work for Google seem very uncomfortable with this idea for the very good reason that it's morally appalling. But like the current prevailing doctrine in America is that employees are allowed to be appalled by this 
And executives are allowed to maybe say that employees are going to be so appalled that like net-net it will be bad for business to go do the appalling thing. But they are like not supposed to say, you know what? I just like I agree with these employees. That's appalling. We're not going to do it, right? Although we're saying that that is what – that had been Google's line up until now. Yes. Which is one reason this is a – we shouldn't get too far down. Right, right. But, but, but that had been a big moment in the company, right. right? Their their thing for a long time was don't be evil and the big example of don't be evil was that their founder who had come from a, 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 right. an authoritarian country decided not to make – not but, to do but, this but, I mean, but I actually think it is worth really getting into this because this is the model of like without a different structure of governance, is it possible for a small idealistic company to become a large economy-driving, value-creating company – without getting rid of any mission it has other than maximizing shareholder value. Right. And one, I just think for everyone, right? I mean, this has been a sort of latent, uh, I, I don't quite know what to say. Like, this idea of shareholder value has, like, achieved a lot of dominance in the business space and in the legal sphere without ever having been, like, a law that was passed, right? There was no formal change that said this is how it's going to be. But there's a lot of accumulated doctrine around it and and changing it even just informally because, I mean, I think a phrase Ezra, I guess, taught me is like people want to be the heroes of their own story, right? So if you can tell yourself that like, well, you are obligated to do the right thing for shareholders and it would be like selfish and wrong to not do that, then that's one thing. Whereas if you're told, no, it's like the choice is on you, that changes the discussions you I, have. I want to pick up on what you're saying about Donald Trump because I think it's very important about the political context in which this is happening. And, and I do think it goes before Trump. I think there can be a tendency to overstate discontinuities between Donald Trump and the Republican Party. But go back into the Obama era, Solyndra. Obamacare. People like Paul Ryan were going out all the time. And the big thing they were saying, the, the, the big way in which the Republican Party was changing its view on things was that they believed things were rigged and we were getting this new crony capitalism where there was a merger between big government and big corporations. And it was like the big renewable energy firms. And I associate this or guys like Tim Carney making this argument. It was a big thing on the right in roughly 2011, 2012. Donald Trump picked up a version of it. He came out and he said, this whole game is rigged against you. And you know what? I know because I've been one of the riggers. I'm one of the guys running one of these big companies that's paying no taxes. I'm one of the guys paying off all these politicians and getting them in my pocket. And now I'm going to come in and having seen all this and having turned on it, I'm going to become a traitor to my own class and work on your behalf. Right? I've always thought one of the great lines from Donald Trump during the campaign was when he said, I've been so greedy. I've been greedy all my life and now I'm going to be greedy for you. And the thing that Donald Trump did was he, he made this argument and it was by far – I thought his most compelling argument during the campaign and then he just came in and didn't do any of that. He did other things, right? He kept up the culture war arguments. He kept up the, you know, I'm going to protect America from demographic change. I'm going to build a wall. I mean, there was a lot that Donald Trump promised to do that he has continued trying to do. But this idea that he was going to act as a traitor to his class and drain the swamp and unrig the system, he just dropped that like a hot potato, as did, by the way, the Republicans underneath him. There's been no great effort under this Republican Congress to fight crony capitalism. And so so what they've done is having helped build this consensus that uh, the American economy is rigged and American politics is rigged, having done a very good job um, knocking back Hillary Clinton by painting her as part of the problem there, they've now left a lot of open space. And so the, the theory of Warren in 2020 has always been that she's basically going to come in and say Donald Trump was right. 
And like I agree, I've been saying the economy is rigged forever, but unlike him, I actually intend to unrig it. And that I think brings up two questions, which is one, is this a plan that would actually do any of that? But two, do Republicans even have an answer to it given where Donald Trump has gone and taken them? Okay. And, and we should take a yeah, break. On, that. on behalf of the shareholders, let's take a break. Support for the weeds comes from not another politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So I don't see the inconsistency in Donald Trump's view that you do. I think largely because like Matt and if you didn't think we were going to bring Max Weber into this conversation, then you have not been with me on enough Weeds episodes. Uh, I see Donald Trump as fundamentally pre-modern in this, right? Like Donald Trump understands power. Donald Trump understands that rules that are created to constrain power, if like the enforcement of the rules is something that can be controlled – it doesn't actually matter that the rules were created to constrain them, right? Like he will often say to advisors, or at least we've heard as much in reporting, like, who says I can't do that? Who says that's not what's done? And that is, it turns out, a correct way to look at a lot of the problems facing the president. It turns out that corporations are also this weird pre-modern thing that aren't actually required to adhere to the rules that are set to constrain power, right? There's a political philosopher, David Seepley, whose work I was turned on to researching this uh, episode by Will Wilkinson, who's had a lot of good thoughts on this at the Niskanen Center. And, a, and at Vox. And at Vox. Uh, and th the argument that he's making is that both historically in terms of like the corporation being 
you know, something that came to global prominence during the pre-liberal exploration era, the Dutch East India Company, that kind of thing. And in terms of the actual way that corporations function in American life, where an employer has a lot of power over the way an employee lives their lives that isn't necessarily constrained by, like, the Bill of Rights or the other things that we assume a liberal individual is supposed to have, there's a disconnect between the legal power that we give corporations and the way that we think that decisions ought to get made, that there's this, you know, liberal understanding of employment as a contract between people, that like a Google engineer, if they really wanted to, could go work for somebody else because they were upset by what the company was doing, and that ultimately that would mean that Google would be incentivized not to do evil, for example. But like in practice, contract is kind of overridden by power. The interpersonal power dynamics of employer versus employee, boss versus subordinate, that kind of thing structure individual life a lot more than the kind of theoretical free contract between two individuals. And so the weird space that corporations exist in and why corporate culture is such an important thing to change is that the understanding we have of how capitalism works relies on this really strong divide between public and private and the idea that things are permissible in the private sphere that we work really hard to constrain in the public sphere. But when you have these entities that are both created by government to a large extent and that have pseudo-governmental power over their employees, that challenges the idea that they should be operating by totally different rules. I think that's true. I also think it's worth trying to get a little more like in the weeds as to what is being proposed here, right? Because some of the reaction, initial reaction from from the right, I thought was kind of telling, right? There was this like sort of hysterical Kevin Williamson piece in National Review where he says, Elizabeth Warren has a nutty plan to nationalize every business in America, right? And this Reason article saying she was going to destroy capitalism. Uh, and then there was a second National Review article from David French who also doesn't know like at all what he's talking about. Um, and I don't want to say that by any means like this proposal is beyond criticism. But the basic idea is both a little unfamiliar to America and also like not that crazy, right? And so in Europe, it's a very different labor relations model from the United States on, on a number of fronts actually. And she's only operating on, on one of them. Uh, but in countries that, you know, if we were not talking about Elizabeth Warren, if you were to just like roam over to National Review offices and be like, does Germany have some successful private businesses? Like, I, I think they would say that it does, right? And in fact, uh, conservatives sometimes love, like, dunking on Bernie Sanders when he praises Denmark and other Nordic countries for being like, don't you know how high these countries score on the Heritage Foundation Index of Economic Freedom? And I just think that's an important baseline, right? Like, separate from Elizabeth Warren, separate from this bill, conservatives appear to me to agree that both Denmark and Germany are in some sense like good places where there are businesses. And 
Germany has actually a stronger form of board representation law where for big companies, defined as over 2,000 employees, um, half of the directors have to be elected by workers. And also in Germany, they have uh, these works councils. So like at any given work site, there will be an elected group of, of employees who, you know, like weigh in on decisions that impact, um, it's called like the social and organizational aspects of work, like snacks in the break room and what uniforms you have to wear, stuff like that. In Denmark, they have a, a weaker board representation rule. It's 35% rather than 40 uh, in Warren's bill, but it kicks in at 35 employees. Um, so it's much more kind of far-reaching. And so whatever it is that you might think you know, this would do or not do, it should be consistent with that. And I have to say, when I first learned about co-determination, it was about six or seven years ago now, it blew my mind. And what blew my mind about it was like what a relatively small difference it makes, right? Like I think if you wandered over to an American businessman, it was like, what if workers elected half the members of your board of directors and also all changes that impact employee lifestyles had to be uh, run by a committee of workers? They'd be like, that's crazy, Matt. That's crazy. And well, Germany has like different economic and social outcomes in the United States. They're not that different, right? And, you know, what research on this seems to show basically is that there is less wage inequality in countries that Can have I quote some stronger of that? forms of co-determination. Yeah. So, so Dylan has a good piece on co-determination and, and quoted some uh, large literature reviews. Uh, and, and so he says that, look, the results are often mixed, but more often than not, studies find the co-determination in work councils, and this is mainly looking at Germany, lead to higher wages, less short-termism, greater productivity, and higher levels of income equality. They may, however, reduce profitability and lower returns for shareholders. Yeah, and so if you look at the um, German stock market, right, German companies are just, they're worth less than American companies. Um, there's like a formal way to analyze this, but it's just like about what you would expect, right? If General Motors had to become tomorrow like Daimler and half of its directors were going to be elected by workers, like its share price would go down for kind of obvious reasons, not like to zero, right? Like the German companies, they, they find their bottom. Um, and, and, and I want to note something on that because I think that can sound in, in a couple different ways. But there's a difference between a company being worth less and a company being worth less to shareholders sure. that I want to note, right? So a company where the workers have more power and so more of the company's gains and spoils are going to be distributed to workers versus distributed back to shareholders or to executives or whatever is different. You could also have a world, and, and this is a, a different argument, where the companies are just worth less overall, where the pie is just smaller. Sure. But I just want to note that distinguishing between those two worlds is actually a quite important thing here. You can have a company worth less on the stock market that it is not clear which of those things you're looking at. Well, right. the other place where this gets complicated is that companies and America over the last few decades has moved toward giving stock, at, you know, using stock as a way for yep. the middle class, whether it's stock options at individual companies or people putting their retirement accounts in as IRAs, that kind of thing. So the biggest negative impact of Elizabeth Warren's bill is that people who have their retirement accounts socked away in the stock market are going to, you know, see less value from those. But the reason that that is the case is that they are the endpoint of a corporate governance structure that incentivizes people using the stock market as their nest egg. Wait, I want to make the conservative argument here. Okay, Because go. that is not what they think the biggest negative impact of for Bill is. Okay, fair. So 
The biggest negative impact of her bill, to, to read the conservative backlash to it, is that it will lead to less innovative, less aggressive, less yes, capable companies. Yeah. It will lead in the long run to less economic growth. So I thought Matt passed this piece around. I thought one of the better critiques of the bill was by Sam Hammond at National yes. Review. And so, also uh, of the Niskanen Center. Also of Niskanen, Which yes. just gets back to our conversation about whether this is going to be a conversation among people who identify as liberal or among, you know, everybody really depends on whether you're willing to grant the premise that, like, it's worth taking seriously. Right. And Niskanen, we should say, is sort of li- liberal it's a, yeah, a little bit of an ideologically unusual yeah. place. Anyway, he writes, and I want to use this as the example. When Steve Jobs took over Apple in 96, for instance, he famously forced the resignation of most of the board of directors, installing close friends who would be loyal to his vision. He proceeded to lay off 3,000 workers and shuttered a number of the company's biggest boondoggles. This earned him a reputation for ruthlessness. It also set Apple on a path to becoming America's first trillion-dollar company. It is simply impossible to imagine Jobs' unilateral vision succeeding in an environment of constant stakeholder management and worker negotiation. So one question is whether or not Warren's uh, bill is powerful enough to have stopped Jobs from doing what he's doing. But let's grant for a minute the idea that it is or that the culture she would create is or something. And so you would not be able to have a Steve Jobs come back into the country – I'm sorry, back into the company and – he would just not have as much power. And certainly you would not have as much power between the sort of hero CEO and the ruthless board to cut costs and to and to just be a, a pretty ruthless form of, 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 of corporate management, which there's an argument leads to more innovative, capable companies, which down the road leads to a bigger economy. And if you don't like the way the distribution works, just focus on redistribution through the tax code, not mucking up the way these companies work. That, as I understand it, is a conservative argument. Do you think, Matt, it makes sense? I mean, I think there's actually two distinct views here. The the Jobs thing is is a little bit of a weird one. One view that I think we should take seriously is that because returns to shareholders will be less, there will not be as much investment in startups, right? Mm -hmm. That like your company going from – I forget what the phrase is, but taking off and getting really big is just not going to be as lucrative in Warren world, right? So it's going to be harder to raise venture capital. And if you were to look at how do the U.S. and German economies differ systematically, that really is one way in which they differ, right? Germany has much more bank loan financing, much less venture capital. It has a software sector, but it doesn't have like big explosive startups, even though they're always trying in Berlin. The jobs thing, I think, is a bit of a of an odd one, right? Because Steve Jobs, uh, though he's a famous tech founder, he did not have the kind of relationship to Apple that like Mark Zuckerberg uh, does at Facebook or Larry Page does or Jeff Bezos does. Like he had sold all of his Apple shares after he got fired the first time. And if you look at his widow is one of the wealthiest people on the planet. But if you trace her wealth, that's all Disney stock. Uh, that was acquired because he founded Pixar. Um, you don't want to be like poor Steve Jobs, but like he made remarkably little money off of Apple. But it's a corporate management question that, that it, Hammond it is, is but up. It is, but I mean, I think there's an important nuance here because I think the fact that Apple under Steve Jobs was a more successful company than Microsoft has been, but that Steve Jobs made orders of magnitude less money than the number three guy at Microsoft is a tell that like financial capitalism does not really work on that level, right? That like it's not actually true that like 
these guys, like, if they had a little bit more financial incentive, would have made their companies bigger and more successful. Like, they're doing the best they can, and the breaks kind of are what they are. Now, could Steve Jobs have pivoted the specific company of Apple as ruthlessly as he did there under a more uh, cooperative governance scheme? I think probably not. But then the question is, like, so what? Right? Do we think that if Steve Jobs had not been available to be hired to take over the sort of wounded corpse of Apple, clean house, fire a bunch of people, cut product lines, launch those candy-colored iMacs, then after that make the deal that got the little spinning disk hard drives to launch the iPod, right? Like, is it the case that in that alternate universe, touchscreen smartphones would never have been invented? Like, I'm really skeptical, right? Like, that vision of the hero inventor CEO in which absent the specific, like, micro-business practices that led to the innovation, that we would not have the innovations, like, I don't see it, right? And I could see it with certain other companies, right? Like, I would say that, like, the boring process innovations that have allowed Walmart to make things in stores somewhat cheaper from how things were in retail stores before Walmart, that maybe wouldn't have happened if you didn't have really big companies, right? But we know that continental Europe actually where they do have really big companies is specifically the boring retail sector, right? Like H&M, Ikea, uh, Aldi, like this is actually the the corporate sector in which Europe excels, right? Zara. Zara, right. So – It seems to me that if software startups are your case for American capitalism working well, that, like, you have a real problem, I think. Like, these are not capital-intensive industries, right? Like, Mark Zuckerberg, to build Facebook, right, to create his vision, it's not like he had to go hat in hand to investors and be like, guys, I need billions of dollars to create these, like, vast physical plants in which I'm going to manufacture my social network. He needed to raise some money, right, because, like, he had to keep going. But the reason those businesses are so lucrative is precisely that they don't need a lot of capital. And I just don't think that if the expected return on that business had been, like, 40% lower, that they would have been like, yeah, fuck that. I'm not going to bother, right? Like, rather famously, the founders of Google at one point early tried to sell it for a million dollars to Yahoo. Uh, then later, they got offered $3 billion, but they wanted $4 billion, and they didn't get it. And, like, that's how the company became so big. So I just, like, I don't know. Like, I don't buy it. I think there's a more fundamental disagreement, right, which is couple people emailed me uh, and they were like, Matt, like, why would we do this crazy change when obviously the current system is great? That is where the Silicon Valley stuff, I guess, makes sense to me, right? Like, if you look at the existence of Silicon Valley and you think that that is so amazing that that proves that, like, American capitalism is actually really good, then you just shouldn't make any big changes, not because the big changes would necessarily specifically mess that up, but because the whole idea of big changes is, like, clearly misguided. And there are a lot of people who I know for whom, like, that's true. Like, they think it is clearly the case that the fact that Facebook exists in America and does not exist in Germany, that just, like, shows that the American social model is way better. I think the fact that Americans, like, don't live as long... (laughs) Um, have much more child poverty, like, suggests the opposite, 
that like the existence of soul crushing social media startups like is not like that great an advertisement for America. But I mean, it seems to me that that's like the fundamental question here, not like the specifics of the business management. I mean, I think the other problem with treating Silicon Valley as a monolith is that when we talk about things that are currently tech giants, we're talking about a generation of firms that were started by people who had technical knowledge, like not just Steve Jobs coming back to Apple, but like Johnny Ive having carried this on as like the star designer who makes sure that there's a strong visual language that's affected a lot of how we see smooth tech. The fact that the Google guys were tech guys before they were business guys. Mark Zuckerberg was able to code Facebook out of his dorm room. The current generation of even very valuable Silicon Valley companies, the kind of Ubers of the world, are business innovations, much more than they are technological innovations, which is to say the value of that company isn't necessarily in its employees. It is in its idea. And that's a different model of things and one where maybe a different approach is needed, not least because some of that value can disappear. Like Travis Kalanick's Real innovation appeared to be that he didn't care about local and state regulations. Yeah. <laughs> and it really does appear to be the case that his business may not be able to survive, much less be the kind of market-busting thing that everyone thought if he's forced to play by the same existing rules as everybody else. If you think of a model where the real lasting value in a company is going to be in the kind of technological innovations it's making, that brings us back to the idea of human capital as a thing that is worth investing in. Let's take a break and come back and talk about whether or not this will even work at all. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. There was a lot of commentary uh, on both sides of this that was all about raising the stakes of this proposal. Like, again, the sort of destroy capitalism, save capitalism debate. There was a piece from Aaron Klein uh, at Brookings, which just took a different uh, approach on on it, which I I thought was at least useful to, to consider. And his question was, well, would this do really anything at all? The whole thing may not work. Boards often don't hold CEOs accountable. Even, uh, you know, naming 40 percent of a board's composition is not getting a majority on it. It's very unclear how decisions are made in corporations. There's a huge amount of economic and management research that goes into this. And and the answer is often it's quite complicated. And then there's also this other question of – why is short-termism, right, which is this thing that Warren is trying to fix, this idea that corporations are, are too focused on the short-term needs of shareholders, 
Why do we even think that is a thing? There's Amazon out there, which does not appear to feel any need to make profits at all. Google for a long time operated under this don't be evil thing and even now is pumping huge amounts of money into weird moonshots over on the side um, and, and things that may not make a ton of sense. If you were thinking about this as like a short-term, shareholder-driven, hyper-rigorous, get-the-profits-and-run-now and kind of thing, and maybe like on the one hand, we actually don't have this problem that we think we have. And on the other, even if we did, what is our real reason to believe that adding, you know, a minority of board members to be dominated by workers would actually fix it? Right now, the view on boards of directors is that they are extremely weak. And a lot of people's problems with executive compensation is because boards are extremely friendly to the executives. And so, you know, for all that Warren is putting forward a fairly aggressive theory of the economy and, and even putting forward what, what is an aggressive bill relative to the status quo, to Matt's point about this leading to relatively similar outcomes in other countries that have even more uh, ambitious versions of it, maybe we're spending a lot of energy here talking about something that if implemented, which is end up adding some compliance costs and creating some interesting board disagreements. It would lead to some good articles about uh, fights on the board. And in fact, this is like a like a red herring compared to things that we really know will work, like, say, a single-payer healthcare system or a big tax credit for the middle class or whatever it might be. I think this is both a good critique but also – in some ways, a not-so-good critique. Like, Aren't I, they all? I, I, <laughs> I mean – I wrestle with this all the time. I'm like a really literal person in my real life, right? And it's easy to kind of look at these things one by one and be like, like, what would this even do, right? Like, on the one hand, like, it's a big change in corporate governance. On the other hand, like, if you read this great book, Varieties of Capitalism, uh, which is about 20 years old now, I think, but it, it sort of goes through the, like, conceptual idea here that Nordic capitalism and continental European capitalism and Anglo-American capitalism are different. And if you read that book, you'll really understand that it's not like it's not like one law that like makes Denmark Denmark, right? You can't like just decide to be a different kind of place. There's a complicated web of, of norms and relationships. On the other hand, like I don't think it's um, impossible to discern, like, the larger meaning here, right? Like, Elizabeth Warren is trying to say that there are issues in American economic policy that should be addressed with tools other than taxation and the creation of social welfare provision, right? That's a contestable idea, but, like, I think should be contested on that level, right, rather than on the kind of Aaron Klein nitpicking level. Um, and I do think that the, the short-termism issue is a real phenomenon, whether you want to say it's bad or not, right? It's true that like Amazon and Google and companies that are closely controlled by charismatic founders are given a leash by Wall Street to do slightly crazy things like we're going to go um, have self-driving cars, right? But companies that are old and broadly held are not given that kind of leash, you know? And if you talk to people who work at a place like um, Verizon, right, a lot of times they'll be in defensive mode. And they'll, they'll be defending their company and everything it does, blah, blah, blah. If you can kind of get them in more relaxed mode, they will actually be kind of sad and maybe embittered that it's like, why don't we get to be a tech company, 
right? Like this is technology, like fiber optic cables. But if I tried to say, oh, I have this like moonshot plan to wire all of Kansas City with fiber optic cables, like the way Google did, like our stock would tank and the board would yell at me. Or send up hot air balloons to give the world internet. Right, right, exactly. That like they are these like old, quote-unquote, boring, broadly held companies that are owned by a mix of mutual funds, some rich people, and then lurking on the sidelines, there are these activist hedge funds that if you start, you know, mismanaging yourself and, like, wasting money on these moonshot ideas, they will come in, they'll get two or three board seats, they'll demand that you cancel your wasteful projects and increase your dividends, right? And there's, like, a big question of, like, is that actually optimal, right? Like there's a theory that it is optimal, right? That that a company like Verizon should not be wasting money on things, right? And that we need both the, the reality and the threat of the activist hedge funds to keep them disgorging their excess profits in the form of dividends and buybacks. That creates a larger pool of money in the pockets of rich people that they can then invest into new things, right? And that that will be better. And then I think another view is that, like, that is wrong, that, like, narrow, efficiency-minded capitalism is going to produce an endless recirculation of boring companies and rich people plowing their money into yachts and ski cabins and things like that. And that actually companies that are driven by an animating spirit of empire building, and that can be an egomaniacal founder, or it can be a cooperative dialogue between executives and workers who are trying to think, like, What do we have in common as, like, stakeholders in this enterprise? And what we have in common is that, like, we would all be happier if our company was kicking ass and, like, doing awesome shit rather than increasing its dividend by three cents a share. And obviously reasonable people can, like, disagree about this, but I think it's a fairly profound question. And I do think, like, the fact that the economic performance of America got worse after we decided we needed to shift in favor of more financial rationality, seems like a pretty telling sort of thing to me. And people on the other side, I mean, I've noticed that there's been an evolution of of discourse on the American right. And it used to be that a lot of people would say, no, this is a myth, that like really economic performance hasn't declined. Uh, But thanks to Tyler Cullen and Peter Thiel and the increasing sourness of grumpy old Republican Party voters, I think there's been more willingness to accept that like this slowdown really has happened. But now they want to say that the slowdown had like nothing to do with the large-scale changes in the economic structure of America that American conservatives succeeded in implementing. And that's, that's too much of a bank shot for me. Like I think that if... Ronald Reagan said we can have more inequality, but it'll give us faster growth, and then we wind up getting slower growth, but the higher inequality, like, that's that's pretty damning. I'm so glad you brought up the idea of activist capital, because if you look at the dynamics here, it makes it clear that what looks from 10,000 feet like capitalism working as expected, creative destruction, is often the result of choices by particular people who are ideologically committed to shareholder capitalism. Like, I feel like the best argument here is, you know, the counterpart to Amazon is Toys R Us, which shuttered its stores earlier this year for reasons that, like, 
you can tell yourself a just-so story about, oh, Amazon is getting better at delivering goods, including in, you know, especially in the parenting sphere um, with subscribe and save and all of that. It's a lot easier. Toys R Us just couldn't compete, so they had to shut down. That's not the whole story. The whole story is that that kind of shift in the market created a corporate death spiral where the insistence on continuing to generate shareholder value for kind of the capitalist class resulted in less investment, less innovation, the kind of things that in Matt's telling should have led, you know, ownership, management and workers to say, what can we do to compete with this? What can we do to, you know, in a capitalist world, continue to make sure there are multiple players in this market and that they're competing with each other for the benefit of consumers? That didn't happen. It was just kind of, well, a superior player has rolled in we got to look after ourselves first and we got to cut out. And so that, I think, is the real question here is if we actually understand that what looks from afar like capitalism working as intended is in fact often going to default toward monopoly, toward the splashiest player that captures a lot of market share, getting an increased amount of market share because everyone else is just pulling out in the name of stock buybacks – is that actually the end game that we think is working well? Or can we see that as maybe a less than ideal situation? There's a, one more way of looking at this bill that is a little bit related to that that, that I want to bring up because I was thinking about this. And, and, and I think that one way this could all play out if this was implemented is that the bill functionally acts as a tax on bigness. There are a lot of people who believe one of the key problems in in the American economy right now is that we are seeing mega corporations end up overly concentrating their sectors. I think that's a very good argument about the Amazon problem. They certainly seem to me to have over and over and over again engaged in anti-competitive behavior, like making it impossible to sell diapers online so they could absorb a, a diaper competitor, for instance. But they're just a lot of very big companies. Bigness is a reward unto itself on a couple of different levels. Obviously, you get economies of scale. But if you look at the way a Google or an Apple work, for instance, they are using their phones to advantage a bunch of their different products. They also end up being powerful in the political system. Google is a very powerful lobbyist. GE is a very powerful lobbyist. And so I think that something you can see in this bill is that one thing it would do is you become a company of more than a billion dollars and all of a sudden you have a slightly kludgier um, stakeholder management system happening at the top where you have to be listening to worker demands more often than you were before. There's just a little bit more that, that, that you need to deal with and also your ability to operate inside the political system um, for your own interests is somewhat slowed down. Now, it may be, uh, you know, there's certainly the possibility, you know, the coal company doing a lot of coal lobbying. It doesn't necessarily mean you won't be able to. But in terms of big companies within the corporate class banding together in, in the ways they do through the Chamber of Commerce and other things or the National Association of Manufacturers to get what they want done done, this will be some amount of, of impediment on that. And so just another way of thinking about this whole thing, Elizabeth Warren has consistently been a critic of bigness. Mm-hmm. She's, you know, been very big on breaking up the big banks um, for reasons that she's very well able to articulate uh, and, and that has to do with just anti-competitive and um, too big to fail concerns. And I think something you can see here is that a lot of the criticisms of this bill are people saying 
if you do this, you are going to make it somewhat harder for big companies to compete. You are going to make it somewhat harder for big companies, which are already complex and unwieldy, to be run agilely and ruthlessly and, and aggressively by their CEOs. And the answer to that might be yes, right? And whether or not you think that's a bad thing is whether or not you think actually what America needs is, you know, all these big companies and frankly, even bigger companies. Or what you think is going on is that new startup formation has actually fallen in recent decades for all to talk about Silicon Valley. And there's a lot of reason to believe that between what companies are doing politically and what they're doing economically, they're able to keep new entrants out of their markets and actually moving the playing field a little bit so big companies have more social responsibility and also there's a little bit more competitive space for smaller companies to come in and outcompete them and outact them. It's like not the craziest thing in the world. Again, that's a that's how you feel about bigness, but I do think that's a way this could end up playing out in practice. I think this gets at something that I've been fascinated by for a while, which is that America for valuing entrepreneurship often does a bait and switch on what that means, right? Like the ideal is the business that could turn into Google. It's not Google as it's currently constituted. It's Google as it was 10 years ago, this like small but growing quickly, overambitious, you know, world beating. You can still see the seeds of this idea that a couple of guys had in there. There isn't the same kind of enthusiasm politically or really kind of morally in how America thinks about itself in the big, well-established corporation that gives a lot of people jobs and creates a lot of value for consumers and shareholders, even though, you know, the Sam Hammond critique is that in practice, those are the companies that are really driving the economy. And I think that there is a question where this turns from a what is the best economic outcome to a what does America value in capitalism and entrepreneurship? Because there are not entirely economic arguments for an economy where there's a lot of small business ownership, where there's a lot of small-scale entrepreneurship, where it kind of gets back to the feeling of rootedness, but it also gets back to a feeling of upward mobility that anyone in the middle class could start their own business and make at least a good living for themselves and their family. And maybe it's true that that's the kind of entrepreneurship that America actually prefers. And that in that case, sacrificing a little bit of economic growth is worth it to shift things in that direction. It's just that that's a normative conversation that we would need to have without accepting that we're not actually debating what's going to be best for GDP. We're talking about GDP versus other things. Yeah, I have a lot of concerns about the way this is structured because it's what she's created is a pretty big cliff at a fairly low threshold, right? The billion-dollar cutoff threshold is not like the super giants of the economy. It's a much broader set of, like, big companies, right? And what happens when you cross that threshold is is a lot, right? It's, it's not the kind of sliding scale that you have in the German system or the kind of Denmark where the, the threshold is really low. Right. Like if your company is fewer than 35 employees, that's like that's like nothing. If you try to grow your business at all, you're going to get over that. A dynamic that we've seen play out in the, the retail sector in the United States is that we used to have a very fragmented landscape where big cities would have department stores that were typically local to that city. And then small towns might have like general stores or, you know, sort of generic uh, good stores that were local to there. Right. What evolved over the latter part of the 20th century is that the most successful stores began to become chains and franchise and spread across the landscape. And 
What we see in the literature is that even though there was a lot in the 80s and 90s of bemoaning of big box stores, for rank and file workers, you earn higher pay working for large retail chains in large establishments because they are better at it, right? Like mom and pop are like maybe actually not that good at running a store, but because they happen to run the store in town, they just continue running it, right? And then when they are put out of business by like guys with MBAs who were trained in like the Arkansas retail boot camp, you can get significantly better outcomes. Warren has, I think, a sophisticated critique of how that dynamic played out specifically in the retail banking sector. Mm. But I don't know why you would apply it broadly, right? Like we see in The Fate of Borders that like it's not true that large retail establishments are too big to fail or that they lobby the government and and get themselves bailed out in, in some kind of way. And if you think about a lot of like really unsatisfying commercial encounters that you may have in life, they often relate to industries that are very fragmented and hyper localized. Like you wish that there were someplace like Mick Plummer Right. That like did big (laughs) national advertising campaigns and like tried to get good ratings and had like two big plumbing competitors and they existed in all cities and they had like uniforms and standards and you would decide which one you wanted to hire. Right. Like that would be really nice as a consumer. And nobody has figured that out as a business proposition. But like I would I would like them to. Right. Like putting a hefty tax on going from small to medium sized seems a little ill-considered to me. Um, mm. And I've spoken to them about, like, like where does 40% come from? Where does a billion come from? And it's guesswork, right? It's like it's round numbers. They wanted a lot of board seats but less than half, so they came up with 40. Uh, if you go from a billion to, like, 100 million, that's a big change. So they liked it where it was. But if you were to actually do this, right, like, I would want to see – like some some real studies, like some charts, some experts, like what happens if you tweak the thresholds, right? Like a lot of this is like it's great for like launching a discussion, but like is it is specifically this how you want the law to work? I'm kind of skeptical. Well, the answer to this could be why don't you have states try it instead? One of the critiques uh, of this pr- proposal that, you know, that we haven't mentioned is that just as a matter of the current federal system, states tend to be the ones who are you know, directing how corporations are supposed to be structured. This is why everybody registers their corporations in Delaware, because that's a particularly permissive regime, that even though the kind of this is government takeover of corporations argument makes no sense given the actual text of Warren's bill, it does represent a federal say-so in how corporations are structured that if you believe Congress is currently restricted by precedent, could open the door to a lot of things that are, you know, less precedented. That requires that you believe that Congress is currently restricted by precedent, which I don't necessarily think is true, but it's worth noting. But it also means that like a lot of these kind of threshold questions of how big does a corporation have to be, how many seats on the board, what counts as a substantial business decision that the board has to weigh in on, 
we could have actual experiments here in the way we are currently having minimum wage experiments, you know, where smaller governments in various situations are trying this and seeing whether it works or not. That doesn't necessarily require us to start this conversation with a federal bill. I'm, I'm more skeptical of that because I think for the reason you brought up, it's a Delaware problem. Um, the corporations will just incorporate and do the charter in whatever place is asking the least of them. Minimum wage, it's a little tricky for workers to um, go dodge the minimum wage by going to, you know, California. I mean, they can. They can move to California. But it's a lot easier for corporations to do their legal paperwork somewhere else than where they're really based. And so I think this is a – I'm often a big fan of, like, let's do some state laboratory trying out. But in this case, I think we've been trying something like that. And what we've ended up having is Delaware is running – corporate charter regulation for the entire country. You couldn't create a system where if you employ X percent of your employees in the state, you have to be chartered in the state? You could try. You could do different things, but you could. You also have a lot more movement from yeah. states to states. And I wouldn't want to create big um, incentives to leave X state and go to Y because Y is more permissive. Yeah. Now, look, I, I will say that somebody listening to this will say, wouldn't this bill just do that for America? I think the evidence is that it is actually significantly trickier and um, less common for corporations just up and leave their country um, for a lot of different reasons. They like to live where other people have lived all the time. But I think the question of whether or not you're in Nevada or California is actually there, – there is a fair amount of flexibility on, on okay, that. that was a bad so idea. But, that. but I, I mean I do think to Derek's point, I mean this would make a terrible framework for like a speech and launching a presidential campaign. <laughs> but like I do think something Congress could consider there would be a much more mild change in this would be trying to establish some curbs on venue shopping for incorporation, right? That like – it would be one thing if the lesson we've learned from incorporation law is that Delaware's comparative advantage in incorporation is so great that Wilmington is the largest city in America <laughs> and the hub of global economic activity, right? But like Joe Biden's going to be so mad at us like, no, this episode. No, no, nobody is – Moving their real economic activity to Delaware, I don't. I don't have off the shelf exactly the details of a proposal that would make a company incorporate where, in some sense, it like really is. But I'm sure that if we like got some smart lawyers working together, we could do something that would give states some more. Uh, like real flexibility in terms of defining how corporation law works. I mean, for example, for tax purposes, right, we do not allow big companies that we all know are located in California to just like say – Oh no, I'm in a state that has no corporate income tax, right? I, right, I'm really in I'm really in New Hampshire. Right. And there are on the global level, right? Like there is mischief making around this. And like oftentimes the re Republican viewpoint would be like, well, the only way we have to like stop companies from pretending all their revenue is in Ireland is to give them a huge corporate tax cut. But like that's not true, right? Like America's it's a big deal on the world stage. Like we could make companies follow laws if we want to and we could make companies incorporate where their actual headquarters is for some reasonably common sense you know, notion like where do the CEO's kids go to school might be relevant, right? And like maybe, maybe some businesses would move, right, to, to more business-friendly environments. I don't think that's like the worst thing in the world. Uh, but what we see from like where big companies are headquartered is that they are often like really and truly not in the most business-friendly environments. Like California makes companies pay a lot of taxes, got relatively high minimum wage. But 
it's a lot of good workers there. And I don't know, like there's nice weather, like rich guys like <laughs> living in California, right? Um, if they all want to go move to Alaska to take advantage of uh, friendly incorporation law, like, you know, we'll see. But uh, I'm kind of skeptical that they would. Seems like a good place to, to come to a close here. Yes, no offense to Alaska, but, you know, also— We we just spent an entire episode about housing policy, like, talking smack about California, so it's fine. Sure, exactly, exactly. I I want to mention I am wearing my T-shirt to remind me that if you you just love hearing my voice, uh, you should check out the latest episode of Worldly, uh, in which I make a guest appearance explaining the economic crisis in Turkey. Um, If you do not like hearing my voice, you should go to the Weez Facebook group where you can interact with other people. Or to the Ezra Klein Show. Or to other episodes of Worldly, which do not feature Matt Iglesias, but which also feature important commentary on world affairs. Yes. Okay, okay. There's a lot of things you could listen to. Today Um, Explained. I think you're interesting. Always a good one. Um, Man, no, but really, you should listen listen to to Worldly with Matt. Um, Yeah, listen to Worldly with Matt and come back on Friday when the weeds shall return. 